Thank you, worship team. Kids, you are dismissed for Children's Church at this time. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Pastor Rob skipped one of the minor prophets. How could he? Zechariah is only the longest book of the minor prophets. How could he miss it? Well, here's how. I made an executive decision. We are not skipping Zechariah altogether. We're going to come back to it. Today, we're going to go through the first two chapters of Malachi. There's no way we could go through 14 chapters of Zechariah. So we're going to do a mini-series on Zechariah, probably one of the most often quoted of the minor prophets in the New Testament. And we're going to dig a little deeper into Zechariah. So this morning, we'll be looking into Malachi, or as a friend of mine who was a good Italian friend used to say, Malachi, the Italian prophet. (laughs) So let's look into Malachi, and let's see what God's Word has to say to us this morning. Malachi is written in a time where Israel had gone into captivity, returned, rebuilt the temple, and had rebuilt Jerusalem. And things seemed to be settling in pretty well. As a matter of fact, life was returning to some degree of normalcy. But there was a problem that ensued. Normalcy became complacency. And as a result of normalcy becoming complacency, they were falling into the same traps that many of their ancestors had fallen into. As a people, they were just sort of going through the motions of worshiping God. Oh, they had responsibilities. They met their religious obligations. They went to temple They gave God some kind of sacrifice. But as far as being committed to the things of God, as far as sacrificing and making sure that they gave God their best, as a people, they were kind of like the construction worker that I used to work with who would say, that's good enough. Half the time when you looked at his work, it wasn't. We do that with God. Why? What usually followed what my construction worker friend would say was, that's good enough for who it's for. They didn't know the person they were working for. They didn't care a whole lot. What's the minimum I can get by with and still have God or these people rather think that it's okay? And... Isn't that an attitude that can creep into us as believers if we're not careful? What's the minimum that God expects and it will be okay? We should run far from that. And the way that we do that is having the right focus on God, understanding who he is. He deserves our all. He deserves everything that we can give to him. Not the least, but the most. So Malachi addresses these issues, and what we see, we've been going through the Minor Prophets, and it's all been focusing on rerouting 
When we're off track, how do we get back on track spiritually? Well, Malachi wants to share a couple of considerations with us as to if we're off track, how we get back on in the way that we view God. So let's look at this together. Malachi addresses the children of Israel, and what he's sharing with them is an oracle that is from the Lord. First of all, he's encouraging us to passionately follow God, not just sort of half-heartedly going along, doing what is prescribed for us by other Christians or by what the pastor says or by what tradition teaches us. We're to passionately follow God with our hearts. Not rote, not just from memory, but from the heart. This is what God wants. And so as Malachi begins to speak to the children of Israel, he encourages them first to remember the greatness of God. Look at the second verse, and it says this, I have loved you, says the Lord. Isn't that a great way to start the passage? The love of God. The love of God is something that we so easily take for granted, but it's so deep. It's something that we need to grasp, that we need to get a hold of. But then he goes on to share something else. He starts to talk about how God himself reigns beyond any borders. So God is saying to the people, I have loved you, but, he's, but he says, or, or, or you ask, how have you loved us? And this is God's response. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says, yet I have loved you, Jacob. But Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Now, this seems kind of harsh when we come to it. Wait a minute. Jacob, he has loved. Esau, he has hated. Hated? Really? What's going on here? What is God communicating? God is communicating something very special to his covenant people. You know what he's saying? Children of Israel, your forefather, Jacob, I loved him before he was even born. Before he could do good or evil, I loved him. Not on the basis of him, certainly not on the basis of you. I set my love on him. I loved him with a covenant love that I would enter into with him and with his descendants. And I have remained faithful to that love. In fact, I have been so faithful to that love that I have punished those who punish you. The descendants of Esau, the people of Edom, they would be perennial antagonists of the descendants of Jacob, the children of Israel. And so what God is saying is this, I don't just say that I love you, but I have demonstrated my love to you by providing for you, by caring for you, by opposing those who oppose you, By punishing those who have punished you, I have demonstrated my love. I'm invested in you. That's God's message to the children of Israel. But then he goes on, and after the fourth verse where he talks about the destruction that Edom, these wicked people who had constantly been at Israel, how they would be crushed, he goes on to say, In the middle of that fourth verse, but this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called 
the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. And then verse 5, it says this, you will see it through your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Now, there are two statements there I think that are significant in that fifth verse. Great is the Lord. When we have the right view of God's greatness, we will correspond to him in the right way. If I view God as virtually insignificant, yeah, he's God, what of it? That's going to play out in the way that I worship him. It's going to play out in the way that I obey him. It's going to play out in my interaction with God. But when I see the greatness of God, when I arrive at the understanding that God is vastly superior to me or anything else, then that will affect the way I worship God and the way I obey God. You know, as the people of God, we have to see God for who he is. And we don't find him through reason. We don't find him through pooling our ignorance. We find God through his word, revelation. So Malachi wanted his readers to understand that God is great. And he's great beyond the borders of Israel. That's the other half, the other part of this equation. See, in the ancient Near East, people thought of gods as localized. There's the God of the Israelites. There's the God of the Philistines. There's the God of the Babylonians. Whatever region you go into, that's where that God is powerful. And what God wanted his people to understand is this. No, no, no. As God, I am great beyond the borders that you squeeze me into. I am the God of the world, the universe. They didn't have a big enough picture of God. So understand what is vital for us in being obedient to God and worshiping God in the right way is this. I have to worship God for who he is. God is great beyond the borders of Israel. God is God no matter where you go. That truth, that reality has to affect me on a very important level. The greatness of God, my view of God, will determine how I respond to God. But then we come to the next point. As we remember the greatness of God, once we recognize him as being great beyond our borders, and by the way, sometimes those borders are human-imposed borders. We impose upon God our human frailties, our ideas that aren't based on revelation but based on our own reason. But when I look and I see who God really is, I will see that true, heartfelt worship is required. Our worship has to be heartfelt. Look at what was transpiring here in the book of Malachi. The scripture says this, a son honors his father and a servant his master. The normal human social interaction that was taking place during Malachi's day would have been for a son to look at his father and respect him. Culturally, that's what they did. A master was respected by his slave. It was expected that a slave would understand that the master was to be respected and honored for his position. So this is what was happening on the human level. But then 
Look at what happens as far as their interaction with God. If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. Well, there's a powerful question that God is asking in this text. What he's saying is this, look, in your human hierarchy of authority, you understand the role of a father or the role of a master, and that's fine with you. You wouldn't break anything in respecting them. But here is God, superior to father or master, superior to all, and you show contempt for my name. The idea behind contempt is they're looking at it as if God is nothing, as if God is unimportant. So that's a bold statement that God makes. And then what we see in Malachi is a dialogue between God and the priests. So when we come to the seventh verse, it says this, You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? And here's God's answer. By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. And how do they show that they believe it's contemptible? Look at that eighth verse. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Man, when I look at this passage, it's convicting. You know what was going on in the law? The worshipers of God were to bring the best that they had. And they would trust God to replace the offering of the best that they gave with more best. They viewed the animals, if they were thinking biblically, as already belonging to God. They were merely managers of what God had entrusted to them. So when they would come before God to worship him, they would take their best and they would offer it to God, but not this group. This group had lost perspective. So you know what they did? There is a blind lamb, no marketable value. As a matter of fact, I have to destroy the animal anyway. So let's give it to God. I mean, at least we're making a sacrifice. God should be satisfied with that, right? As long as I do something, then God will be happy. Is that not contempt for God? The same with the lame animal. It's a lame offering. That's what it is. Very lame. As followers of God, we shouldn't take our leftovers. The things that we carve out and say, I don't really need this anyway, so I'll sacrifice it to God. We should give him our best. And this is what God is calling his people on right here in this text. As a matter of fact, to drive home the point, he asks the question, hey, try offering that to your governor. Would he accept it? Now let's bring this up to modern day. IRS. Hey, you know what? I pay too much in taxes. 
I'm not giving you what you say I owe you. Take 30% and be glad that I gave it. What happens? You're going to get a friendly reminder, not-so-friendly reminder in the mail, right? The government wouldn't accept that. And yet, what do we do? We give God our leftover time, our leftover resources, our leftover energy, and we say to God, aren't you glad that I gave? Aren't you glad that I've worshipped you with this? Something that would be unacceptable to a boss, unacceptable to a government, we believe should be perfectly acceptable to God. We're short-sighted in who God is when we do that. Look at what the text goes on to say. Verse 9. Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. Now, do you catch the sense of what's being said here? Here, what is being said is this. Look, I'll take my seconds. I'll take the things that aren't really that important. I'll give them to God, but I'm going to continue just as if nothing was wrong. You know, as believers, sometimes we think, I'll read my daily bread. I'll listen to Christian radio when I'm in the car. I'll give what I have left over at the end of the week. Squeeze God and church in where it fits. I've got this Christian thing nailed. I know what it is to be a follower of God. And we've lost the point. It's the heart that we do these things with. It is carving out God first and then going to the other things that we should be doing. For the children of Israel, that wasn't the case. And for many Christians today, I think we would hear what Jesus had said to the church at Ephesus. You have lost your first love. We've become distracted. Isn't it amazing how human problems from another world away, from another time, are the same problems that we have today? That's why God's word is so practical. It speaks to those issues. Malachi is bringing forth God's perspective on us throwing him things that we don't really care about and saying that we've sacrificed. In fact, one of the most powerful verses is verse 10. Look at this. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, and I will accept no offering from your hands. You know what God is saying? God does not need our worship. God is not in heaven wringing his hands saying, oh, man, I hope they give me an acceptable sacrifice. I really need it today. God is not needy. The sacrifices are for our benefit so that we will know how we are to love and serve God effectively. Here, the word of God is saying that God would prefer to shut the temple doors than to have half-hearted sacrifices given to him. And, you know, the thing that stands out to me is 
God is addressing the priests here, not the rank and file. These were the spiritual leaders, not the average person that comes and worships in the temple. From the leadership on down, complacency had set in, and people were suffering in their relationship with God, thinking that it would be acceptable, but knowing deep down that it really wasn't. Look at verse 11. Perspective. As you bring these subpar offerings and sacrifices to me, God reminds them of who he is in the 11th verse. And he says, my name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In other words, throughout the world, my name is great. And every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Your little slice of time and real estate that you have as you pass through this life is a blip. In the final analysis, God is God. And there will come a time where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That's the thing we're to remember. That God is God no matter how we respond to him. But rather than seeing the greatness of God, look at verse 12. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table... It is defiled and of its food is contemptible. Now look at verse 13. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. Now here are people with the opportunity to honor and worship the living God. The one who loves them deeply. The one who has demonstrated his love again and again and again. And when God calls for them to come together and worship him, to sit under the word, to come and be a part of the worship of him, they look at it and they go, oh, man, what a pain. I don't want to do that. It's a burden. Wow. I mean, this is a perspective builder. Because I'll tell you, as a pastor, there are Sundays where I look and I say, oh, man, is this Sunday already? I got a sermon to give. Yeah, I wrote it at the beginning of the week, but I don't feel like doing that today. I'm going to confess that there are some times on Wednesday nights when I have a Wednesday night Bible study and Paula laughs at this. I go, okay, got to go back out. Here we go. Do you know what I find when I come, when I worship, when I share the ministry that God has given me? There's a tremendous blessing. That effort that it requires to go and do these things as unto the Lord, and my emotion and my human thought may seem like something that's just not going to happen today. God makes it happen. And this isn't true just of pastors and priests. It's true of all of us. John reminds us, this is love for God, to obey his commands. And and look at the next statement. And his commands are not burdensome. 
How many of us see the commands of God as burdensome? We can slip into that trap, can't we? God wants us to be people who are committed to him. Then look at that 14th verse. Cursed is the cheat. Man, that is strong language, huh? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Do you see what was problematic here? Somebody finally comes to the conclusion, hey, you know what? God deserves my best. So I'm going to give him this lamb, this beautiful, perfect lamb. I'm vowing, I'm giving it to him. That beautiful, perfect lamb. You know, that's such a perfect lamb. He'd be great breeding stock. But I promised it to God. But he's so perfect, it's such a waste of an animal. You know what? I think God's going to understand. If I take this one over here that's a little messed up and I give it to him, I'm a cheat. Strong language. But you know what I've appreciated about these prophets? They tell it like it is. No sugarcoating it, no trying to be politically correct. They're being doctrinally correct. And we need to bring our viewpoint in line with what God says. Third area that we need to consider in remembering the greatness of God. Chapter 2, in verses 1 through 9, and we're not going to take as much time on on this part of the passage, but in verses 1 through 9, we see the priests again addressed. And look at what it says. And now this admonition is for you, O priests, If you do not listen, if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. Now, it's the set your heart part of this passage that I want us to key in on. You know what the heart is? The heart is the center of our will. That's the part of us that looks and chooses and makes decisions and moves us in the right direction. We will follow our heart. If we set our hearts on the things of this world, that's what we will follow. If we set our hearts on God, then that's who we will follow. So these priests are being called upon to stop looking and talking about how you're followers of God, but give little evidence of it. Set your hearts on God. And when you set your hearts on God, the rest of it follows. That's the message that's being shared here. Now the priests were descendants of Levi. And Levi was one who entered into a covenant with God, and as a a tribe, his descendants were to be priests within Israel. And Malachi points out that Levi had been one who was faithful in his service. But somehow, along the line, these descendants had come to the place to where they were not, and they were just offering random sacrifices, and rather than leading the people and saying to the people, don't go there, don't go in that direction, they were saying, eh, 
Slide me a little extra and we'll call it square. That's the idea. That's what they were doing. Now, what's God's perspective? God's perspective is found in the third verse, and I'm going to give you a different translation because the NIV is a little too kind. English Standard Version says this, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. I will spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Now, the dung, animal waste, was supposed to be carried outside the gates and dumped outside Jerusalem. So what he's saying to them, and and, and this is powerful, if you bring half-hearted sacrifices to me, rather than carrying that animal waste outside, why don't you just smear it on your face? Something that would be grotesque and offensive. But that's the kind of offense that God was taking to what they were doing. It's a strong statement. And behind it were the priests, the spiritual leaders. They weren't calling people to worship God the way that they should. It reminds me very much of something we find in the New Testament. Paul is speaking to Timothy, and he says this, Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Generation after generation, the same problem. In Malachi, it's the priests. A whatever. In the first century, it's teachers. Yeah, what do you want to hear? Okay, let me share it with you. Today, we find the same thing. Well, we don't want to offend anyone. Listen, the way that we find truth is by getting real and looking at things as they are and saying, hey, here's the problem. I need to address it. So that's what the minor prophets were doing right along. Another thought. In addition to coming to the place to where we remember the greatness of God, we're to repent from breaking faith. Now, take heart. This part of the passage goes faster than the first part. But I want us to think about some of the things that were going on here in Israel. Because they were not viewing the greatness of God, because they had not honored him as he deserved to be honored, because they weren't giving him the reverence that was due him, it was affecting them on the level of the way that they live. So when we come to chapter 2, verse 10, we find that there were evidences that they weren't following God in the way that they should. So let's look at these evidences. Verse 10 asks, Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. You know what they were doing? 
first of all, as a people, they were abandoning marrying those who shared the same worldview and had the same commitment to God. Now, where's the harm in that? Isn't that just a touch intolerant? I mean, come on. Get real. Let's, let's understand that diversity is a good thing. So let's embrace that. You know what was happening to the children of Israel? They were marrying people who did not share their same faith in God. And rather than those who didn't share the same faith in God becoming followers of God, for the most part, there are anecdotal differences where sometimes this works. Okay, I'll give you that. But the majority of them, you know what they did? They turned away from God. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, there's a story of Balaam. He was kind of like a hit prophet. And basically, he would be hired to go and speak things against people and make it happen. And so Balak of the Malachites decides, hey, I'm going to hire Balaam. And he's going to speak some curses against the children of Israel. And they're going to get zapped by their own God. You know, that's kind of the approach that they're taking. So what happens? Balaam goes to say a curse against Israel, and bleh, out of his mouth comes a blessing. Balak's saying, what? I paid you to curse, and your blessing? Well, let me try this again. You know, I'll say a curse, and bleh, out comes a blessing. So Balak is saying, this is not working. And Balaam's saying, I can't help myself. I have no control over this. I'm going to keep saying blessings, so don't pay me to say anything else. But I do have counsel for you. Take some of your most beautiful women. Send them over to the people of Israel. And pick your most idolatrous women you have. Marry the men. And when they connect with you, you're going to draw them to idol worship. And then God will do to them what you want them to, to have done. That was the idea. In the New Testament, we have this statement. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Here's the thought. If I marry someone or connect with somebody who is diametrically opposed to everything I believe in, everything that I say that I follow, how can I have a connection with a person who is diametrically opposed to the things that are precious to me? Something's going to give, and it's probably going to be me. And again and again and again, through the history of Israel, this is what was seen. As people slipped away from God into worshiping idols, into buying in to beliefs and practices that were not honoring to God. 
But there's another problem. Something else that needed to be repented from was breaking the marriage covenant. They were refusing to honor their marriage covenant. As a matter of fact, look at verse 13. Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. Another thing that you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts with pleasure what is from your hands. And you ask, why? It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her, though she is your marriage partner and the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one flesh? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. Now what was going on? Within Israel, the men who were marrying the idol-worshipping women were leaving their wives, breaking a covenant that they had entered into as man and wife and departed to go pursue women who were not followers of God in this specific situation. Now, that is bad enough. They're breaking the covenant that they had entered into with the wife, but they were also breaking the covenant that they had entered into with God. And here was the problem in Israel. During the time in which Malachi wrote this, women did not receive alimony. Women did not receive a place to live. No child support. Basically, when a husband kicked his wife and his family to the curb, they were on their own. Society shunned them. It was destroying Israel. God was saying in this text that what they were doing was wicked. And then look at verse 16. I hate divorce says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself and your spirit and do not break faith. You know what is being said to these people? Your hard-heartedness, where you break covenant with your wife to go off and pursue another relationship somewhere else, I find detestable. Don't leave them. Honor the commitment that you've entered into. That's the message. Now, understand that that is the general principle on divorce. The innocent party in this case, the wife, being abandoned by her husband, had no Provision, no recourse, no help. When God was saying that this was something he hated, he hated those who were initiating the divorce. He hated that sin. The callousness of seeing someone who had become dependent on them in that culture 
no longer provided for. It was eroding the family. It was harming the home. Now, there are those today who look at divorce in a very cavalier way. Even in Jesus' time, there were those who said you could divorce your wife for anything. Burns the dinner, eh, filing for divorce. But what we find is God makes provision, I believe, for the innocent party. We are not to break covenant just for breaking covenant. Jesus said this in Matthew. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That's the way God views marriage. That's his original intent. This is what God wants. Man is the one that comes along and messes things up. When we enter into the covenant, this is God's ideal for what we're to experience. And the sixth verse goes on to say, So therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. That's where God is on the issue of divorce. But then there was an objection that some made to Jesus. And they said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Because, or they, they asked Jesus about, hey, what about Moses' certificate of divorce? And this was Jesus' answer. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. So God's ideal, stay together. Because of man's sin and hardness, some would divorce their spouse. The spouse is not held accountable for the sin of the offending party. But for the offending party, God finds it offensive. And so divorce was running amok among the children of Israel. God found it offensive. One final thought. Something else that we need to repent from is relativistic morality that breaks faith with God. Look at the last verse of the second chapter. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? So a society that doesn't have the right view of God, it will be shown morally, but it's also going to be shown in their perspective. You know what their perspective was? Look. When I do evil, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's not good. But I'm not as bad as some of these wicked people over here. Oh, sorry, the side of the church. <laughs> you know, over here. <laughs> I'm not as bad as them. And they'll find somebody worse than them, and they'll feel good about themselves. Well, at least I'm not an axe murderer. I don't know what an axe murderer says. You know. At least I'm not a, I don't know. And so we make sin something that's relative. We start coming up with our own ideas and conclusions about what's bad and really bad. And sin 
is really kind of unimportant when it's my son. When somebody else's, it's really bad. But when it's me, eh, there's a reason behind that. It's not really that bad. That kind of thinking needs to be repented of. When we understand who God is, when I grasp who it is that I am sinning against, who it is that I've entered into an intimate relationship with, that's going to transform me. It's going to change me from within. And this is what God wants. Don't fall into the trap of looking and saying, hey, as long as I do something, God will be happy. I'll do the minimum that's required. And as I do that, well, we'll just skate through life. I'll cash in at the end. Heaven awaits. Wrong perspective. We worship and we serve Almighty God. He deserves our best. Not the little things that we throw him in recognition our best. So don't take blind and lame sacrifices and say, here, God, here's my leftover time. Here's my leftover resources. Here's my leftover energy. They're yours. Do with them what you will. No. We're to put God first. Because as God, that's what he deserves. Let's pray.